Church, what a joy it is to be here with you this morning to worship the Lord together. No matter where you go in the world, when you come across Christians, you share a common faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us all. What a joy. This morning, imagine with me a scuba diver at the Great Barrier Reef. He's been swimming all day, seeing all kinds of cool fish, shells, crabs, lobsters, all kinds of amazing things. It's a beautiful day in paradise, to say the least. However, his time is running short as the day draws near, and so he heads his way back to the boat. And as he's making his way back, something catches his eye at the bottom of the ocean. There's a dark cave, but there's a shimmering object that catches his eye. And though he knows he needs to resurface because he's low on oxygen, he actually chooses to go towards that shining object. His desire is fixed on the object. He swims hard and fast towards it. And at one point, he realizes he can't turn around. He is out of air. It is soon to be the end for him. But his desire is so fixed on this shiny object that he continues going deeper and deeper and deeper. Swimming faster and harder, consuming more of his oxygen. But he doesn't appear to be getting any closer to the shiny object that has caught his gaze. His desire fixed, he soon will breathe his last breath. Who would do this? Who would keep going down when you know that you are running out of air? Actually, though, this chilling situation is more familiar than it seems. This actually once described us all. And our text this morning is going to tell a story that is even more chilling. But our problem is that we didn't see how chilling it really was. But here's the good news. Unlike the diver's story, our text has a happy ending. Our text is going to reveal to us just how chilling our lives were and just how glorious God's salvation was. A remedy so marvelous, a deliverance of such magnitude that it will be the object of our eternal wonder. So let's look at what it says. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich 
in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you see the dangerous situation in this text? And did you see the glorious deliverance? That's the effects this text is meant to have on us. And if we were today to boil down the point of the text, this is what we should take away. The gracious nature of our salvation reserves all glory to God. The gracious nature of our salvation reserves all glory to God. Paul wants to remind us of the power that rescued us from the dead so that we might come to marvel at the immeasurable riches of God's grace to save sinners like you and me. And the simple truth of this text has massive implications for our lives and shows us just how good our God really is. And I think we see three main points in our text. Three aspects of this wonderful rescue story that's meant to shape our lives. The first main point is this. We were helplessly dead. Verses 1 through 3. If you're familiar with this letter, you'll know that chapter 1 is packed with amazing truths. The spiritual blessings we receive in Christ. But then in chapter 2, Paul takes a turn. And in these verses, Paul looks back to our condition before we received those blessings, and he unpacks just how dead we were. Notice that these are past tense verbs. This is who we were before Christ. Verse 1, we were dead. Not physically dead, but dead in the trespasses and sins we were walking in. Our condition was not a mixture of good and bad. It was not even one of moral neutrality. Rather, all that we did was characterized by sin. Even if we did a good thing, it was for the wrong reasons and the wrong motivations. And as a result, we were severed and alienated from God, the source of true life. This is what it means to be spiritually dead. Moreover, we weren't stationary in our sin. Paul says that we followed the course of this world. This world which we followed is not in the direction of God's will, but rather is in rebellion against God, just as we were. This is not good news, but it gets worse. Not only were we dead, we were enslaved. We followed the prince of the power of the air, Paul says. That is, we followed Satan himself. Whether we knew it or not, the sobering reality is, we belong to him because we, too, were in rebellion against God. And notice that Paul says that this spirit or influence is now at work. 
Satan's evil supernatural activity exerted a powerful, compelling influence over our lives and actually continues to do so in this world. We were spiritual captives. For Satan's influence held sway as we rebelled against God with him. Thus, Paul says we were sons of disobedience because our lives were contrary to the living God. This just seems to be getting worse and worse, and that is Paul's point. But he continues, and he describes exactly how we were walking in sin. Look at verse 3, where he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul switches here to we. He doesn't leave himself out, but recognizes that he, like the Ephesians, was also helplessly dead in sin. He remembers full well how enslaved he was to sin. And so he doesn't leave himself out of this group, and neither should we. Because we were at one point also enslaved to sin. And the language is comprehensive. Every part of us was sinning. Our daily lives were marked by pursuing whatever pleasure we conceived of, both in body and mind. Our endeavor was one of enjoying this world to the glory of ourselves. Let me explain this statement with a few clarifications. This does not mean that people are as thoroughly sinful as they can possibly be, nor that they don't have a conscience about right and wrong nor that they aren't able to perform certain actions that are good and helpful in the sight of others. Thankfully, God, in his common grace, mercifully restrains sin in a fallen world. However, this does mean that every aspect of human nature is affected by sin from birth. Thus, nothing we did was pleasing in God's sight. Nothing we did earned his favor. This is because we had no love for God as the motivating principle for any of our thoughts or actions. And further, we could not change this fundamental preference for self-worship and sin, nor did we want to. Rather, we willingly chose to rebel against God. Paul finishes the picture with the outcome of all this. He says, we were dead, and then he goes to, we were enslaved, And then he moves to, we were condemned. He says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We and the rest of humanity were destined to receive exactly what our sin called for, the righteous wrath of a holy God. Think back to our scuba diver. Remember, he was fixed upon that shiny object. He would not and could not turn away from it, even though it meant death. That was us with sin. We would not and could not turn away from our sinful desires, even if it meant certain death. Why is Paul telling us all this? Does he want to shame us? By no means. Rather, he wants us to see our desperate need, how great of a need we were in. He wants us to see that we were helpless. Because once we have grasped how serious our condition really was, then we can see why Christ had to die on the cross for us. 
D.A. Carson describes our condition when he writes, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. This leads me to my second point. Although we were helplessly dead, the story didn't end there. And so we move to main point number two. God mercifully saved us. Verses four through seven. Let me read those verses again. But God, be being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul turns our attention to God's powerful grace to save us. Verse 4, but God. There's an abrupt change in this text. We've already seen ourselves, we've seen the devil, and we've seen all of mankind. But now a new character arrives on the scene. Like a superhero who flies in and changes everything. The greatest superhero ever imaginable has showed up. Not Batman or Superman or any other man, but God shows up. One who is able not only to save us from physical death, but from, eternal punish, from the eternal punishment we deserved. And no, Paul doesn't begin with what God did. He begins with who God is. Because of, of what he did will flow out of who he is. And first, we see that God is rich in mercy. Showing his compassion to those who are totally unworthy and undeserving. And that mercy proceeds from love, hence the great love with which he loved us. How great a love is this? A love so great that he was able to love us even when we were dead in our trespasses. The word even here is emphatic. Even when we were still dead in our trespasses and sin in which we walked, following the course of this world, following the way of Satan, living in the lusts of our flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. Even then, God made us alive in Christ because of his love for us. That is why Paul exclaims in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is clear then that God did not love us because of who we were or because of anything we did, because all that we were doing was sinning against him and his creation. The very best works, the very best of our works pierce Christ's hands and Christ's feet. That is why Paul exclaims in verse 5, 
by grace you have been saved. And how did he save us? Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. Remember, we were dead, but God took action and raised us up from the dead. And he did so with Christ. Notice here how closely we are connected with Christ. Paul says, with Christ and in Christ several times. In other words, all the blessings of our salvation are found in him alone. This reality is further spelled out in the New Testament and is often referred to as the doctrine of union with Christ. This doctrine teaches that salvation takes place, place in Jesus because he is our salvation. And salvation is found in no one else but him. Thus what God accomplished in Christ, he has also accomplished for believers by joining them to Christ. He is in us and we are in him. What amazing truth that is. Paul goes on further to describe the glorious realities of being made alive in Christ. He says that we were raised up with him. Like Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, we were raised with him spiritually and one day physically, and through him we're reconciled with the Father. Further, Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So not only do we participate in Christ's resurrection life, but we also share in his exaltation and consequent victory over sin and evil. In him, we are new creatures. In him, we are now free. Therefore, we do not have to succumb to temptation, nor the evil one's influence. For the power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in us by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, we see where this is all heading. The purpose of our salvation is so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, our salvation will put on full display all the wonderful works he has done for all to see, for all to marvel at the incredible grace and love of God toward us. And Paul tells us this so that we begin marveling now. Because we will never be able to fully exhaust the depth of God's grace in saving us. Nor his love for us, for it is immeasurable. God's act of saving sinners like you and me will serve as a demonstration of his glorious grace for all eternity. There is another magnificent reality here at the end of verse 7. Don't miss it. We are seen as those in Christ. In other words, God now views us as he views his beloved son. Once enemies of God and objects of his wrath, we are now loved by him. With the same love he has for his dear son. This should amaze us, for this is the grace of God. Of God. In his most excellent book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this In the New Testament, grace means God's love and action toward people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners 
who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to the cross so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. It is about this grace that John Newton wrote in his song, Amazing Grace. We're all familiar with that famous hymn, but it becomes more meaningful when we remember the man who wrote it. John Newton was a man who spent his life in the slave trade, participating and profiting from its brutal inhumanity. However, on one journey, he encountered a storm that swept some of his men overboard, leaving all in the fear of death. And with both hands fastened onto the ship's wheel, this hardened sailor turned his heart to God and cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. And after 11 hours of steering, the remainder of the crew found safety with the calming of the storm. From then on, Newton dated March 21st as a day set aside for prayer and praise. As this was the day that God saved a wretch like him. He soon began to learn Greek and Hebrew and shared his conversion at various congregations. And he was eventually ordained and began to pastor his own church. God had transformed him from being an advocate to the slave trade to a man actively working towards abolishing it. Most importantly, God saved him, a sinner, by making him alive in Christ. In later years, Newton began to lose his memory. Although his thoughts were limited, Newton said he could remember two things. That I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. Newton knew that the story of Ephesians 2 that we read today was true of him as well. Indeed, it was amazing grace that saved him and saved us. What about you? Is grace amazing to you? Or have you grown familiar with it? This text is meant to kindle afresh that sense of amazement. Because here's your story. You were made alive with Christ. You were raised with Christ and seated with Christ. See God's love in this. Be reminded of his mercy. See the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. What a transformation we've received from objects of wrath to objects of mercy, from spiritual death to new life, from bondage to sin and Satan to freedom in Christ. Every necessary step to reverse our condition in sin, God has accomplished in Christ. And it is all a gift. And all of this is meant to have a powerful effect on our hearts. It is meant to produce Joy in our great deliverance. It is meant to produce humility as we see our great undeservedness. It is meant to allow us to rest in our great security, namely Christ, who has secured our eternal salvation. So do these characterize your soul as you ponder Christ and what he's accomplished? If not, let this text adjust your perspective on Christ's salvation and let it refresh your view of God, who is rich in mercy great 
in love. This text is meant to cause us to cry out, who is like our God? There is no one like our God. He alone is worthy of our devotion, our lives, our praise. Now that we've seen our helpless condition and God's powerful action, we're now in a place to reflect upon the nature of our salvation. And this brings us to the third part of Paul's argument. Main point number three. Our salvation is totally by grace. Verses 8 through 10. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk and then, given all that Paul has said, he draws an inescapable conclusion about our salvation. The entire process was completely by God's grace. And Paul could not be more emphatic. He says, it is by grace you have been saved. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. Paul will not allow us to find a trace of our salvation in something we do. It is, we were not saved because you made a decision. It's not because you did a deep study on world religions or because you know a bunch of facts about the Bible. It's not because you tried harder. It's not because you piled up more good works than your neighbor. It is neither your achievement nor a reward for any of your deeds. Rather, it is totally by God's grace. His undeserved kindness, his merciful generosity. Now, Paul also notes that this salvation is through faith. And there is a tension that needs to be spelled out here. If God is the one who saves us by his grace, what part does our faith play in all of this? And the key to this is in the following sentence where he says, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This means that salvation is obtained not by doing, but by believing. Nothing of which we did saved us. Rather, our salvation is a gift of God. Even faith is a gift of God. Faith can be defined as our trust and reliance upon Christ. Thus, faith is an instrument, and the only instrument by which one can obtain salvation. And yet, even this faith was given to us by God as a gift. And he sustains our faith in the Holy Spirit as we walk with him. That is why, verse 9, the whole process of salvation is not a result of anything we have done. And therefore, we cannot boast in ourselves. Because God's initiative in salvation leaves no room for human merit. And therefore, there is no room for boasting. Rather than boasting in ourselves, instead, with Paul and with all the men in faith of Scripture and throughout history, we can boast in the Lord. Because while we were helplessly dead, he saved us and made us alive in Christ. Truly, our salvation is a gift of God by the power and grace of God. Verse 10 further supports and explains this. You may ask, what is he mean by workmanship in verse 10. 
And by stating that we are his workmanship, Paul is referring back to all that God did for us in Christ to save us. Emphasizing again that it is God's work that saved us, not what we did. In fact, he uses a present tense verb now. uh, He uses are to indicate that we are still his workmanship. This means that although we were saved in the past, God is still working in us to make us more like Christ. Thus our salvation is from first to last his glorious workmanship. We truly are his masterpiece. He created us, redeemed us, is sanctifying us, and will one day glorify us. And there's a purpose to this. Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Although our salvation is not based on our works, this new life leads to good works. Good works are, like our salvation, a gift from God. It is not, he saved me, now I have to do the rest. No. Our future changes because God has made us a new creation with a new purpose. And therefore, we have an amazing future of doing good. We do these good works not to earn salvation, for that has already been fully given. Rather, good works are the evidence and the outflow of the grace of salvation we have received. We've been repurposed to our original design. The trajectory of our lives has changed to one pleasing to God. Our whole identity has changed. Our whole life has changed. Our whole future has changed because of God's gracious salvation. Moreover, Paul says that these good works were prepared beforehand by God so that we should walk in them. God designed these good works in eternity past and for which he has fashioned us so that we should continuously do them. Again, it is all by the grace of God. For even the good works he sets before us to do, he divinely orchestrated. And he empowers us to do them. And notice the connection between verse 10 and verse 2. In verse 2, we were walking according to the world in the flesh. The pre-Christian way of life. But here in verse 10, we are walking according to the new life we have in Christ. And the good works God has prepared for, before us. This is actually one of the striking features of our passage. Paul draws a stark contrast between our previous condition outside of Christ and our current condition in Christ. Let me spell it out for us. Verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sin, but, verse 5, have now been made alive. Verse 2, we were following the ways of this world, ruled by the kingdom of uh, ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, but verses 5 through 6 are now under the lordship of Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Finally, verse 3, we were children of wrath, but verses 5 and 8, we are saved by grace and reconciled to God in Christ. Notice also that the works of verse 10 are described as good works in contrast to the wicked works of verse 9. The works of verse 9, before being made alive in Christ, were anything but good works. But a glorious change has come. In Christ, God is pleased by our works. So they are said to be good because they come from the Spirit of God himself, who is at work in us. 
We have been totally transformed so we can live a life not of dead works, but of glory to God. What a joy. In church history, catechisms have been used to summarize complex biblical truth. And it strikes me that question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, written over 450 years ago, beautifully captures so much of what we see in our text. Question one asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? It ritually answers that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the glorious reality that is ours in Christ. The same God who raised Christ from the dead raised us up from our death and sin, liberated us from slavery, and rescued us from condemnation. Therefore, our faith rests entirely upon him. Our lives belong to him. Don't misconfuse this. This is not to say that once we are saved, we will just stop sinning. Actually, later on, Paul will spend much of this letter encouraging the Ephesians in their struggle with sin. But before he gets to that, he wants them, and God wants us, to have a rock-solid security in the salvation he has purchased for us. That salvation has made us alive and created new desires within us. It sets us on a course to increasingly put sin to death and walk in the wonderful works God has prepared before us. And the implications for our daily lives couldn't be more encouraging. First, when we fail, there is no condemnation, but instead, forgiveness and reconciliation to God in Christ. Second, since we are his workmanship, he will continue the good work which he began in us and bring it to its completion. That is why Paul can write in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, where he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The same power of God, which was effective in Christ's resurrection and exaltation, has made you alive with Christ. The same power is at work in our lives now by the Holy Spirit. What a glorious reality. Yet we must consider another implication of this passage. Sadly, those who do not know Christ, they are still dead in their sin, just as we were. They are children of wrath. They are in desperate need of 
rescue. And this is the seriousness that must drive our evangelism. We should not hate unbelievers around us by no means, but we should love them with the love of Christ. And true love toward them is expressed in compassion toward their helpless state that we too were once in. Just as we were helpless, our unbelieving friends, family, neighbors are in all are all in urgent need of a Savior. And the good news, however, is that the one who saved us is able to save them and desires to save them. God is able to save anyone, even those that seem to us to be unfathomably unsavable, those deep in sin and despair. They are not too far off. Therefore, this passage gives us confidence in our evangelism. For we see that it is not in our hands to save, but it is in God's hands. We are, though, commissioned to be faithful gospel proclaimers. And so, in confidence, knowing that God will save those whom he chooses, we ought to proclaim the gospel to any unbeliever we meet. No matter how lost they may seem, knowing that by the power and grace of God, they too can be saved. Because this God who has rescued you through the gospel of his son is still rescuing. God, by his grace, changes lives. In an exercise to remember God's grace in your life, look back on how God has changed you. You could remember how he converted you or maybe a particular season where he caused great growth in you. And then as you remember this, I want you to tell someone about it. Tell your wife, tell your kids, your friends, your coworkers, but resolve to tell one person about what God has done in you. This is one of those good works we can walk in this week. Because when we remember what God has done, we can then marvel at God's gracious salvation. For this is the God, and this is the grace of God that has changed the trajectory of our entire lives. Let me end with these words from John Newton. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. We've been here 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun. However, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word that has penetrated our hearts this morning. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that has illumined your word to us so that we can understand it, so that it can be effective in our lives. We thank you for the work that has rescued us from our deep, helpless state, despair, and sin. We thank you, Lord, that it is all by grace. We know that we could add nothing and we could do nothing to save ourselves. Nor did we want to turn away, Lord, but you rescued us from our enslavement, our condemnation. We are now yours in Christ forevermore. May we not 
ever lose sight of this glorious reality, Lord, but may it penetrate our daily lives as we leave here today into this week so that we can be light among the darkness, so that we can go with joy each day through all the difficulties, Lord, with the strength of Christ. Because we have been saved and nothing can change this. Nothing, Lord. Thank you. May you continue to be magnified and glorified in our praise as we partake of your supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.